before we look at this text, please join me in prayer. Oh, how we love your word. It is our light in our life. It is a lamp to our path. Lord, without it, we would, we would be blind. Left to our own wisdom, Lord, we would certainly just bring about destruction. But through your word, we have understanding insights, even more than the ancients, as it says in Psalm 119. But Lord, there your word it has such depth, such clarity, such weight, Lord, and it's 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 often difficult to understand, especially Job. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, Spirit, that you would assist us beyond just what is explained in the sermon. But Lord, you would give us deeper insight that we would see its relevance, its application to our life, and. That you would continue to deepen and increase our theology and, and lead us to know how you would have us live in light of the things that we will face in life. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I would argue uh, that the most dangerous place any person could ever be in is to be wise in their own eyes. As you know, Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for that man. And just, just consider Satan, as we've seen him present in the last two chapters of Job. Even though he's talking to God, who he knows is omnipotent and omniscient, even though he's talking to God, he, he swears an oath that if God just takes these things away from Job, Job will certainly curse him to his face. Even though God presents him this way, Satan is so convinced in his own mind that he's right, he's willing to take an oath on that effect. But of course he's wrong. Proven wrong twice. And the same sort of arrogance is actually reflected also in Job's friends. And the problem honestly isn't in their theology. Much of what you, you'll, you'll see this as we get into the book. Much of what they say about God is actually spot on. The problem is in how they apply it. And this is due to their being convinced that they, they think they know more than they actually know. And because of how much text we're going to cover this morning, we're just going to look at the, the first cycle of deliberations as Job interacts with each of his three friends. Because it's so much, I'm just going to really fly through these chapters. I'm going to kind of summarize uh, the main points of what his friends are saying and summarize his main responses and then draw out um, some of the implications as we go through this. So it's going to be a whirlwind. There's, it's it's going to be one of those sermons with very little frills. Uh, but I think you're going to find it pretty enriching because this is, a, it is it's, it's definitely worth more time. But I think just for the sake of our congregation... Flying through it is is going to be what's best. And if I were to summarize the main point of this first cycle of deliberations, I would present it this way. It's wiser to be honest about what you don't know and to then seek understanding because you don't know it than to assume you know something that you actually don't know. Because that's really what Job's friends get wrong. They assume, based upon some really good principles that are true principles, 
They assume they know more about what's going on than they actually know. And it gets them into some pretty big trouble. And they say some pretty cruel things on account of it. Let's look, first of all, at the, the Job's, Job's response to his agony as he expresses his wish that he would die. This is Job chapter 3. Job's first desire that he expresses in this text is that he would die, and that's understandable. In fact, you see in chapter 3, 3 through 10, his pain is so great, he wishes actually he had never come into existence in the first place. That, That when that opportunity arose, that he would have just been snuffed out. In fact, in 20 different ways, Job expresses his desire that he had never, ever been born. It shows you not only intensity of his pain, but, but his agony, his grief, his loss. But it's interesting, even though he's honest about his longing for death, he's not suicidal. Because he wouldn't destroy his integrity just on account of the pain. So instead of seeking his own life, what he actually does is he asks God to take it from him. In fact, that's why he's so confused and frustrated. If God is willing to afflict all these injuries on him, according to his perception, why doesn't God just kill him and get it over with? Why does he allow him to stay alive? Job just wants to die. And I think maybe it's because we live in the Disneyland of the world. That is the the United States of America. Our culture really is loathe to, to be honest about the pain of life. We, we just tend to pretend those pains aren't there. When conflicts come up, we just tend to sweep them under the rug, so to speak. Or we drown ourselves in entertainment or other substances like alcohol and drugs just to, to numb the pain. Or we overeat, we go on long vacations. Or we, we just try to find somebody we can blame it on. Whether it's the Republicans, the Democrats, the media, blame them for the pain and maybe that will numb it. And I actually assume most of you, if you've lived beyond 13 years, I would assume that most of you have felt at some point in your life exactly what Job feels. That you, you just wish God would never even have created you. Because... The pain of life can be so intense sometimes. You just don't even want to get to the healing. You just wish it would be over immediately. And I don't think that's a bad longing. Because it's natural. Given, given how painful life can really be. You wouldn't say it's wrong for a person who put their hand on a hot stove to rip it off and scream. You'd say, well, that's, of course you would do that. That's natural. And likewise, the desire to be just done with life's pain, to not face another loss, is is a natural desire. And Job here isn't so much longing for death as much as he's just longing for the pain to be over. He wants peace. But after hearing his dismal longing, his, his friends, they're very eager to respond with their counsel. And the first to present his counsel is Eliphaz. Eliphaz begins by essentially saying, So Job, you you were fine helping others when things were going well for you, but I want to see now how well you can take medicine when now it's your turn. 
Now when you're the one that needs counsel, let's see if you can handle my advice since you were pretty good at giving advice in the good days. He says in verse 4, Your words have helped the tottering stand and you've strengthened the feeble knees. Now it's come to you, but you're impatient. It touches you and you're dismayed. His his voice. So now it's your turn to receive counsel. Let's see if you're man enough to take it. Not just to give it, but can you take it, Joe? And then in verse 7, he he presents his fundamental argument. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? His point is, since the innocent are afflicted by God, what does that suggest, Job? And then notice just his continuing insensitivity in his words in verses 8 through 11. It's the wicked who perish in the blast of God. Well, that's an interesting phrase to use. What do you think he's referring to by the blast of God? Maybe a tornado that would crush a house and everybody living in it? And then it's also the next verses that depict God going after fierce lions, which are a metaphor of the wicked. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey. The whelps of the lioness are scattered. His point is God would only attack a family of lions again, wicked people. To his credit, he doesn't say, well, God crushed your kids, but that is what's behind the metaphor. Eliphaz assumes Job is guilty of some secret sins based upon this simplistic people, this simplistic principle that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And he asserts this principle based upon personable, personal, sorry, personal observation. In verse eight. But he also claims to have received support through supernatural revelation, which is interesting. If you look at verses 12 through 17, he describes actually a supernatural encounter with a spirit. It doesn't appear that he's making this up because this encounter corresponds with how other people have responded when they came face to face with an angelic being. And this is what the angelic spirit says. Whether it's a demon or angel, we're not told, but this is what it says in verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? I mean, what, what, what the Spirit tells Eliphaz is a true statement. Given the holiness of God, given the depravity of man, what man is there that can stand before a holy God? And Eliphaz is saying, Job, even if you can't see your sin, it's there. Now, again, we're not told whether this revelation is from an angel or a demon. But it would not surprise me if it, if it was Satan himself who appeared to him and gave this ammunition, ammunition to Eliphaz in order to shoot it against Job. But it, it is a true assertion. Continuing on the subject of angels, in chapter 5, Eliphaz asks, Call now, Job. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones, it's referring to an angel, to which of them will you turn? His point is, Job, you're complaining about life. Who do you think's listening? 
I mean, even if an angel heard you, do you think any of them are going to stand beside you and, and declare that you're righteous? Well, the irony is, because we have read chapters 1 and 2, the answer is, not just an angel, every single angel in existence would stand up and declare, yes, he's righteous, because God himself has declared that he's righteous. Of course, Eliphaz doesn't know this, which is exactly the point. And we're given chapter 1 and chapter 2 so that we know that Eliphaz is wrong. Because, frankly, if we didn't have chapter 1 and chapter 2, we too would probably be like, Eliphaz, you got a point. What you're saying about God is true, and it doesn't look good for Job. But God gives us chapter 1 and chapter 2 to see we got to be very wary of what we don't know. We know these things, but Eliphaz doesn't. And because he doesn't, he makes some pretty awful assumptions. He presumes to know more than he actually does. And therefore, though he is wise by worldly standards, he makes himself a fool. Notice verse 13. He describes God as making the wise foolish. Of course, this is the only New Testament verse that's quoted from Job. 1 Corinthians 3.19. If you think about the implications that are profound. Elvad's argument essentially is that only the wicked perish. And, and if you think you aren't, you aren't wicked, Job, you're wrong. Notice verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly, fly upward. The point in these verses is that trouble doesn't come from the dirt. Dirt is just dirt. It's not moral. Trouble comes from man who's made from the dirt. Our problem, in other words, is not with God. Our problem is ourselves. The reason we have trouble is because we ourselves are sinners. We're born for trouble because we're born in sin. And since man can't make himself right with God, Eliphaz is saying rather than complaining, forgetting what we deserve... We should instead just apologize to God for whatever wrong we've done. Job, you just just apologize to God. If you apologize to God, things are going to go well for you. And that's what he says in verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God. I would place my cause before God. And he says, if you just make things right with God, you're just going to be full of blessing. Now we can see what he's missing. Job hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, it sounds right. If you just confess your sins, you'll be reconciled with God and things are going to go great. Because he's no longer going to be against you. But that's the point. God isn't against Job. There's no sin to confess. Job is going to suffer affliction even if he found some sin to confess. Eliphaz's conclusion is wrong. And this is why he says in verse 17, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So don't, dis- don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. You know what? That's a true statement. It's quoted later in Psalm 94, 12. It's the implication behind Hebrews 12. Right? He inflicts pain and God gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. Verses 18 to 23 give all the reasons why someone 
should just accept the chastening of God because it's for their good. Right? The hand that wounds is the same hand that heals. But again, this doesn't apply to Job because he's not being disciplined by God. He hasn't sinned and he certainly isn't happy. And this is the thing. Eliphaz, in some ways, he's right in what he says. His theology is right. But he's also dead wrong because he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He knows some true things about God, but that doesn't know he knows what's going on in Job's life. And so this brings us now to Job's response to Eliphaz. And in his response, Job addresses that counsel that he shouldn't complain, but just accept the Lord's discipline. That he just should just wait for the Lord's goodness. In verse 3, Job acknowledges, okay, maybe my words were rash. My words for the wind. I mean, because the intensity, if you just understood the intensity of my suffering, you would have enough sense to realize, okay, maybe I, I overstated my case a bit. But he appeals to them to consider his situation. Who wouldn't be grieved? And so he still longs for life to be over because of the intensity of the pain. And then in the beginning in verse 8, he addresses the suggestion that he should just wait upon the Lord's goodness to come. If indeed he's innocent, Eliphaz says, goodness is going to come eventually. And this is Job's response. Note particularly verses 11 through 13. What is my strength that I should wait what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Is that my help not within me? And that my deliverance is driven from me? The point is, he doesn't have the strength to endure more affliction and to wait for these blessings that Eliphaz has assured him of. I mean, Eliphaz cancel kind of reminds me of that, that poster I came across when I, a school library or in the classrooms. You know, they used to have these inspirational posters that we're supposed to cheer us up and give us warm fuzzies. Here's a picture of one. Like, hang in there. It'll be okay, Job. Just, just hang in there. It's been months of excruciating pain. And Eliphaz, this is, this is the counsel that he can provide. Because he's pretty certain he knows what Job needs to hear. And because of this weakness of this hang in there counsel... Job gives him some critical feedback in verses 14 through 26. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. So that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. And he goes on to say that he feels robbed because he thought they were going to come bring comfort to him. When he first saw his friend show up, he thought, okay, maybe, maybe they're thinking they're going to give me what I need. This is... The, the spiritual sustenance encouraged my need. And he's like, just the opposite has happened. Not only have you not given me refreshment, you've stabbed me through the heart. You've only increased my agony. And his point in verses 22 to 26 is that he didn't even ask for their advice in the first place. He didn't come to them seeking their help. They showed up and just offered it. And all they have brought him are wounds. And he gets super sharp in verse 27. He says, you're the kind of people who would take advantage of victims. You would cast lots over the child of a debtor. Or an orphan. 
You'd make, you'd make that, that helpless orphan your slave. That's the kind of friends that you are. And all I have to say, Job isn't feeling comforted by their counsel. Now in chapter 7, Job returns to that hang in there suggestion of Eliphaz. And essentially he says, I've been waiting for months. For months. That's hanging in there. And I instill an absolute misery. And it hasn't helped since you guys showed up. And so wanting me to be patient is a useless comfort. And then in verses 12 through 21, Job then addresses himself directly to God. And essentially he asks God, why, why have you made me the special subject of your attention? Why are you picking on me? What have I done to you? And why are you so interested in me? Note especially verse 17. What is man that you magnify him and that you're concerned about him? Now, this, of course, is, is cited later by David in Psalm 8. And it's then later cited in Hebrews 2, which we read earlier. And Job's point is, why, why does God care so much about him that he's directing all of his anger towards Job, a person who's, who's relatively insignificant? And Job says, I don't warrant your attention, God. I don't understand why... You find me so significant to afflict me so much. Now, it's interesting because in a sense, Job is right. God is paying special attention to Job. In fact, it's God's special attention to Job that does bring about all this conflict. Satan's out looking for somebody to devour and God says, have you set your heart upon him? He's upright, blameless, fears the Lord, turns away from evil. God pointed Job out because God did see Job. But God, it wasn't God that brought about this affliction, though. It was Satan. God has set his attention on Job, but it's not to punish him. It's because he loves him. And he's going to seek to honor him. And that is the point, actually, of Psalm 8, where David wonders, why does God sit put so much attention on man, on men who have nothing to offer him. Why would God care about any of us? See, David actually has more, you could call it, it's further revelation of this principle. Job sees it as a curse, understandably, but David understands that that says something about the character and mercy of God that he would even pay attention to us at all. And then it goes one step further in Hebrews as that Principle is explained even further that it's because God set so much of his affection and love and significance on individual men that he sent his son to pay the price for their sin. See, Job's Job's question is going to be answered. Job's not going to get the answer for it, but it, it, it shows there needs to be an answer to this question. And an answer eventually comes in the whole of the New Testament. God's going to bless men beyond their wildest dreams and grant them the deepest longings of their heart through Christ. And this brings us to verse 21. Job wonders why God would afflict him. Is it for some past sin that he's committed? And and he says, if this is the case, if there's one of the sins of my youth that I'm finally just getting punished for now. So Job's saying, I'm not sinless. I recognize I've sinned before. But 
these afflictions don't seem to warrant the sins that I've committed. There seems to be a disconnect. He's confused. There's nothing he's done recently that would warrant such affliction. He says, but, but if there is some sin that I'm being punished for, God, why don't you just forgive me? If you, if you are a good God, why don't you just remove my iniquity somehow? I mean, again, he's not challenging God as much as he's re- expressing the deepest desires of his heart. The pressure, the pain, the agony that Job is feeling in his affliction is it, it, it's boiling Job down to what is, of his, what is truly his deepest longings. It's exposing what are man's deepest, greatest desires. We often get deceived into thinking what we really want is money or wealth or fame. But when affliction comes, all of those things we see for what they really are. The pleasure isn't really that pleasurable. And Job is getting it now. And he's not saying, God, you must forgive me. But he's, he's wondering why. This, would, this is what I need. Forgiveness. If I could only have pardon. And Job says it's because he doesn't know what we know. Who have received the message of the gospel. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I mean, what, what, what would Job have done if he would have known this verse? This brings us to Bildad's counsel. Bildad simply affirms God is just, Job, and God doesn't punish people unjustly. It's a true statement. All right, look at verse 3. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? And therefore, Job, if it's not your sin that's being punished, whose might it be? Bildad's willing to give him maybe the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it wasn't your sin, Job. It was your kid's sin. Verse 4. If your son sins against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. And remember, this was, this was Job's worst fear. Hardly a comfort. I mean, Bildad is like stabbing Job in the heart. Remember Job, he, he had no evidence that his friends had ever, his sons would ever curse God. But every week he would offer up a sacrifice just in case they had. And Bildad's saying, well, they probably did. And that's why they got what was coming to them. Now, it's interesting. Job doesn't defend that. Because Job doesn't know. That's why you see the wisdom of Job in contrast to his friends. Job doesn't know if his sons have done anything. He doesn't suggest that they have it all. But he doesn't defend them. Bildad's essentially saying, your kids have gotten what they deserve. So if if you don't want the pain to continue, just accept the fact that they got what they deserve and seek God. Move on, Job. He gives advice in verses 5 through 6. If you would seek God, if you would implore the compassion of the Almighty, 
if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And of course, that would make sense if we saw what Bildad saw. But we know that Bildad's wrong because Job is righteous and God hasn't done that yet. Bildad doesn't know as much as he likes to think he knows. But he defends his counsel first upon the, based upon the teaching of ancestors. Right? He's citing good sources. 8 through 10. In 11 through 22, he, he cites observations from nature. This is a good, this is a true principle. God is just, Job. And he wraps up his counsel by saying, if you really are a good man, Job, everything will work out in the end. Just remember Romans 128. Of course, he doesn't know that. And that's not the point of Romans 128, or 828, but you know my point. Right? We all want to just say, hey, don't worry about the suffering. It's going to work out in the end. How? And what do we mean in this life? We need to be careful with Scripture that we're not stretching it beyond its intent. It's a true principle. But we need to be careful with our application of it. Again, Bildad's problem is not what he says about God. His actually assertions about God's justice and man's depravity are true. Again, his problem is that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He assumes Job's kids are guilty just because they died. But they're not. And it's true that God doesn't punish unjustly. But their death was not due to God's punishment. It was due to Satan's wanting to prove a point. And similar to Eliphaz, Bildad's argument is, again, built on this assumption that most, if not all, suffering is a punishment for sin. We see this in chapter 8, verse 4. And although it's true that, that much suffering is due to our own folly, the natural recourse of the stupidity, right? We, it is true that we reap what we sow, right? We see that principle in Scripture. But it, Bildad's problem is he stretches that true principle way beyond its intent and makes it universal. He's also incredibly cruel. We should say that as well. And Job responds to Bildad in chapters 9 through 10. In his response, Job says, he doesn't disagree with this principle of God's justice. God is just. And he affirms that. The problem with this principle, Bill, that is I didn't do anything. And he says, you're not listening to me, so I, I need to plead my case before God to clear up this un- misunderstanding. Maybe God thinks I have done something, but I don't know what it is. So I wish I could just come to God and plead my case. Look at verse 2, chapter 9. In truth, I know this to be so, but how can a man be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. In the rest of chapter 9, he presents this terrifying description of God's awesomeness in comparison to man. And that brings him to this third deepest longing in verses 32 to 33. For he's not a man as I am that I may answer him. 
that we may go to court together. There's no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. Job says, I would like to present my case to God and talk to him, but I can't. I can't stand before God. He's God and I'm a man. He recognizes if what I really need is I need a mediator. I need somebody who can stand before God and plead my case on my behalf. And it can't be a man. The implication is it needs to be a, someone supernatural who can make intercession for him. In chapter 10, Job then addresses God and asks, essentially, why are you picking on me again? If you want to afflict me, why, why, didn't, why didn't you just not let me live? It would be better to not exist at all than to, have, to not have a mediator that could stand between you and me. And Job says this because he doesn't know what we know who have received the truth of the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony that Job wishes he could have, but the testimony that we have today. We can know we have a mediator who can plead our case before God. We can't come before God. But He can. My little children, 1 John 2.21, 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one who will advocate on our behalf. Again, Elphaz assumed Job was guilty, but he didn't outright say it. Bildad assumed it was Job, Job's sons who were being punished and Job was just collateral damage. Zophar has no qualms and he boldly accuses Job of committing sin. Let's look at Job's or Zophar's counsel in chapter 11. He begins by accusing Job of just being a talkative boaster with empty words and proud speech. You're just bragging, Job, about your innocence. It's not even real innocence. He says he wishes that God would just speak out of heaven and directly confront Job and call Job onto the carpet. Verse 5, But would God speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom? For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. He's saying God was exacting less punishment on you than you deserve. Job, your problem is you don't know all of your sins. But God does. God knows. He knows all your misdeeds. And even if you don't know what you're being punished for, Job, God knows. Right? Verse 11. For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without even investigating. He's claiming God's omniscience. And God is omniscient. And Zophar then offers Job his advice in verses 13 through 20, which essentially is this. If you just confess your sins, Job, and repent, everything's going to turn out all right. Just confess. Why do you hold fast to your integrity? Just admit you've done something wrong, whatever it is. 
And then the good times will come in. Now, is what Zophar is saying true? Yes and no. It is true that God is omniscient, that he knows all of our sin. Even the sins that we don't know. He knows everything that's happened. And it's true that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to lead us into all righteous, right? First John 1.14. The problem with this counsel is that it doesn't apply to the situation. Zophar doesn't know what Zophar thinks he knows. Job's not being punished by God. And there isn't some secret sin that Job, God is wanting Job to repent from. Except for listening to his friends misapplied theology. So Job then responds to Zophar in the last three chapters of this section, 12 through 14. And in these three chapters, Job challenges three aspects of their counsel. The first is, he basically says, you haven't said anything helpful. What you've said, everybody else already knows. It's nothing new. It says that in verse 3. It's, there's nothing helpful. You're, you're bad comforters. In fact, in chapter 13, 4, he says, he calls them healers of worthlessness. Secondly, he says, your, your assumptions actually aren't entirely true either. Because it's not always the case that bad people get what bad people deserve and good people get what good people deserve. There's lots of bad people that prosper. This theme will come up again later on. And there's lots of good people who suffer. So you're overextending this principle even if the principle is true. Job then, thirdly, he warns them about their desire to defend God, which is interesting. Look at verse 9. Will it be well when he examines you, referring to God, or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely repuve you if you secretly show partiality. Job's saying, you're so eager to defend God, but what, is, what do you think God's assessment is of your defense? I mean, imagine if a lawyer, a, a lawyer volunteered to defend a, a person, a billionaire who's being sued by some company and says, oh, I'll take care of the case. And then that lawyer just does a lousy job of defending his case. I mean, what's that billionaire going to think of that lawyer? How long is that? What's going to happen? Job's saying, if you want to be God's advocate, I would at least make your case airtight. What, what must God think of your weak defenses on his behalf? Do you think God appreciates what you're actually implying about him? It, notice verse 11. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. And Job's warning here is warranted. Because God, in fact, will rebuke their, his friends for their bad counsel. Because they misrepresent him in their defenses. Job 42.7 Again, they think, they think they're defending God. They're so certain. They're right. And they're, they're going to defend God. But in reality, they're actually dragging God's name through the dirt in what they're saying. And, and, and consider that. What they actually say about God, about his character and his attributes is true. But by 
taking those principles and misapplying them to Job's situation, they make God out to be cruel and needy. Right? God is just waiting for your apology. As if God needs an apology. In fact, they make God to be out like Satan. The kind of person who will give if you give to him. Right, their theological statements are largely accurate. And that's why their statements are repeated in other scriptures. I mean, we went through it so fast, but scripture after scripture after scripture gets built off some of these statements in Job. I mean, your cross-references are probably just loaded, I'd imagine. If you have a good cross-reference Bible. Their problem isn't their theology. But their problem is their pride and presumption. They think based upon their good theology that they know way more than they actually know. They think because they got good theology, they're actually the ones that are wise. They're the experts on life. They can tell people the answers they need. And likewise, I think many Christians in their pride can can be so intent upon standing up for God, defending God, that they actually drive people away because of their arrogance or their pride or their condescension in the way that they speak about God. They drive people away from the church. They drive people away from God. Not because what they say is wrong, but it's because of their attitude. And the person's saying, if if that's what God's like, if you're a representative of God, I don't know if I want a piece of that God at all. How we conduct ourselves is equally as important as believing the right thing. Because how we conduct ourselves actually shows what we truly believe. Our choices, our actions show what we really believe. Not what we write down on a doctoral statement. These, these men weren't actually defending God. They were defending their own pride. In fact, they're justifying their pride. That's why they start to get more and more angry Because Job won't listen to them. They won't say, Job won't say, oh, you're right. Oh, you're so wise. Oh, I affirm you. But he argues back and he shows them the holes in their logic and they get angrier and angrier. Because they're not defending God, actually. They're just defending themselves. And we have to be so cautious that we don't buy into that same sort of folly. That thinking that we're defending God, we're just walking in pride. Because somebody won't give us the respect we think we deserve. And Job then presents his final wish in chapter 14. thirteen, Verse 13 through 15, which is a longing for new life. He says, oh, that I would hide in Sheol. That you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. That you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. Some real depth in those statements. I won't unpack it all. But Job says this again. He expresses his longing for new life because he doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know that Christ is going to rise from the dead. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Revelation 21, 4. Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That would have been Job's greatest longing. To know that one day the pain is going to be over. And whether you realize it or not, your, your greatest needs, your deepest desires aren't any different than Job's. I mean, Job really represents every man here. And if we were to suffer like Job suffered, these two would be the, these four things would be the very things that we too would cry out and say if we only had them. It's on account of this tremendous suffering that Job realized what he truly needed. He needed forgiveness for his sins. He needed freedom from the pains of this life. He needed the mediators to stand before him and God. And eventually a new life through a resurrection. And all these greatest needs can only be found in Christ. And if you seek relief from the pains, from the, from the various deaths of life that you experience. If you want relief from these things, turn to Christ and be saved. And even if, even if your pain in your life never does leave, you can be assured that it will, it will be relieved when He returns and grants believers a resurrected body like His own. I want to close with Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Heavenly Father, we know that all of all of the richness that we have as Christians is given to us on account of Christ. All of Job's longings, all of our longings have been are found in him. Lord, we we don't receive these things because we're good, because we're wise, because we're wealthy or intelligent. It's because you've opened our eyes and given us faith. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who, who doesn't yet know the love of Christ, that you would open their eyes and so that they too might find the joy and relief and the peace that comes from the absolute assurance in his work on the cross. We ask these things in Christ's name.